So in the morning services, we're preaching through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 1. In the evening services, we're preaching through Deuteronomy. But this morning is the Gospel of John. Uh, His purpose, John's purpose in writing the Gospel, he states later in the book that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the whole purpose of the book. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The first 18 verses of chapter 1 of the letter are called the prologue of the Gospel. Uh, John sets forth in this prologue the major themes about Jesus that he's going to continue to to work through through the rest of the book, at least many of them. First of all, we see that Jesus is God. He's called the Word. The Word is God. He's always existed. He's the perfect Word of God. In Him we have life. He's the only light for men. The only light. There's no other light except for Jesus, the Word. He's the one and only Son of the Father. The only begotten, if you will. Son of the Father. And He's the only one with truth. But more generally, what the prologue does is to explain how how God came into the world. How this infinite and eternal and unchangeable God came into space and time to save His finite and temporal and fickle people. And that's us. How did this happen? How was it that all the prophecies were fulfilled and that we were able to see the way to life and that we were able to see the Father and we were able to be saved? How did He do it? Well, John 1 tells us. We're going to talk about that this morning. And you need to know that these, these, these things that we're going to learn today and really we have for the past few days are so critical just for Christian living because there's so much error in the church and has been since the very, very earliest days of the church regarding these issues, who Jesus is. And really when you're wanting to evaluate a church uh, or a teaching especially those Christian cults that are thriving in America, there's two things you should immediately look for. Number one, what do they say about Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is? And number two, what do they say about the cross? Did He finish His work on the cross? Was the work of atonement complete on the cross? But who is Jesus? He's 100% God and 100% man in one person. Two natures. In one person, it's called the hypostatic union. It's the foundation of our belief in the gospel that God and man were united in the person of Jesus Christ. It's also been the source of great heresy. Um, If you don't believe in a full God and a full man in the person of Jesus Christ, then you don't believe in Jesus. All the other, or sorry, all the early church heresies and really all the, the early conferences and creeds were written to address this issue. The nature of God as divine and in Jesus and the nature of man as human in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. Here's just a couple quick ones. The Arians said that Jesus was created by the Father. There was a time when Jesus didn't exist and God the Father created Jesus. 
is heretical. He's the only begotten son of the Father, but he's always existed. The Apollinarians said that Jesus had the body of a man, but not the soul of a man. Where a human soul was, it's just Jesus' spirit came and filled that space. It's heresy. The Nestorians said that Jesus is actually two persons, a heavenly person and an earthly person. The Eutychians said that there are two natures, the, the divine nature and the human nature in Jesus, but in Jesus they're combined in some new thing. It's a new, it's a new thing that none of the rest of us have. These are all errors. And John, in these first 14 verses, deals with every one of them. John 1 was where all of the fathers, the church fathers, went to correct these heresies. And it's so important that we understand and believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. Because for the sacrifice to be acceptable, He must be fully man. And for the sacrifice to be sufficient to cover an eternity of sin, He must be the eternal and perfect God. So this is a weighty passage, an important passage, one that I hope you see with new eyes this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 1-14. through 14. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Please be seated. Let us turn once again to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are your children who desire to hear your voice. May your Holy Spirit enliven our minds and our hearts to hear this word to receive it, to store it up in our hearts, to obey it in our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Word became flesh. This truly is the mystery of mysteries. Almighty God became flesh. This is something that theologians and Christian men and women have pondered since the Incarnation. 
How is this possible? Augustine wrote in 411 AD these words. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that the truth might be accused by false witnesses, the judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge, justice be sentenced by the unjust, the teacher be beaten with whips, the vine be crowned with thorns, the foundation be suspended on wood, strength might be made weak, that he who makes well might be wounded, that life might die. What Augustine is doing is trying to wrap his mind around the incredible reality that the eternal God, the infinite God, came to us as a man. He tabernacled among us. We're just going to walk through the text and see that the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we've seen His glory full of grace and truth. Fairly simple outline for the sermon. I want you to remember back throughout the Word of God, especially when we preached through Genesis three years ago. From the very beginning, God had promised that a Redeemer would come and deal with the serpent and crush the head of the serpent. This is called the Proto-Angelion, the, the first notice of the Gospel. The good news that a Redeemer was coming. And since that promise in Genesis 3.15, the prophets have seen this Redeemer described as a man, but also described as God. The coming of someone who would fulfill this prophecy was seen as a man in prophecy, but it was also seen as God. And to a theologian of the Old Testament, it must have been confusing to them. To us looking back at Christ, it makes perfect sense. To them looking forward to their Redeemer, it must have been confusing indeed. There are many examples of the promise that this Redeemer would be a man. Of course, Genesis 3.15 said that this would be the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. In Deuteronomy 18.18, we read that it would be this man would be a prophet like Moses. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that this, this Redeemer would be a descendant of David. In Isaiah 53, famously, we see that He's a man of sorrows. He's wounded. He suffers. But we also see that the Redeemer is described as God. All through the, the Old Testament Scriptures and prophecies, Isaiah 4, that He's the branch of the Lord, beautiful and glorious. Isaiah 9, He's Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5, that He will exist from days of eternity. Malachi 3, that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. Talking about the Redeemer. So what John is doing is he's showing us in these, this short section of Scripture how all of these prophecies are brought together and reconciled 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. Early in the the prologue, he says that Jesus, the Word, was God. He was God. He's eternal. He was in the beginning with God. He's the Creator. In verse 14, and we're just going to look at verse 14 this morning. In verse 14, we see that the Word became flesh. The Logos, the Word, became flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the Gospel. God became flesh. He would leave His glory in heaven. Perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit and come and become a man and take on flesh. He lost none of His divinity and He gained His humanity to save sinners like you and me. Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 8 says it this way, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person, Jesus, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Christians must believe this truth. To be a believer, you must believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Christ the Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true body with a reasonable soul. He was fully man. And He had to come as man. This is what Christmas is supposed to celebrate. Not the silly things of Christmas, but the essential part of Christmas is celebrating that Jesus came to earth. And it was important. Jonathan Edwards said it was important for three reasons. And I agree. First, the law was given to man by God and it needed to be obeyed by man. Perfectly obeyed. All men broke God's law, but it must be obeyed and fulfilled perfectly by some man. And then this man had to die. He had to be a sacrifice because the law of God is just and He's a just God and man broke the law. A man had to die. He couldn't send an angel to die for the sins of man. And no, no natural descendant of Adam could suffice as that sacrifice because we're all born in sin. So He had to come as man. And thirdly, He came as a man because God thought it proper that the world which was the stage of man's fall and ruin should also, also be the stage of His redemption. He had to come to this world, to us, to restore it and to save it. Torrance writes, Jesus is born through the womb of Israel, within Israel, through the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
in His purpose to reveal Himself to mankind and to enter healingly within human existence, God refused to allow our limitations and weaknesses to inhibit His purpose of love and redemption. So He condescended in an incredible humility to find a way of entering with our beggarly weakness and poverty, to find a mode of divine entry into our finite and mortal existence. In other words, God in love came all the way down to us. All the way down to us. The Word became flesh. He condescended to become man. This is like a a teacher who's talking to kindergartners. And she's, she's, or he's very, very well educated. Master's degree in education. Studied her whole life. And yet when she talks to those children, she talks in a different way, in a different tone. She doesn't talk academic language. She speaks to them in a way that they can understand. That's what Jesus did when He came to us. He's, he's showing us the Father. The Word became flesh. He was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He ate and drank and slept and washed and bathed and sweated and became hungry, thirsted, like we all do. He was tempted and yet without any sin. And He was so much a man, a regular man, He's God, but He looked like a man, so much so that people could pass Him by and not notice anything special. He could pass people in the marketplace and be unnoticed. This is the most wonderful event in all of history. Accepting the death and resurrection of Christ, I would say. And yet the birth of Christ must come before the the death and resurrection of Christ. The Word must become flesh. Theologians have noted that the creation of the world was an amazing thing. When God spoke the universe into existence, it's an amazing truth, an amazing reality. And yet more amazing, exponentially more amazing, is that the Almighty God became a human being. The Creator became a creature. And when Christ was born, the greatest person who was ever born into the world was born. Man was confined by space and time, so God entered space and time. And now, we all measure our existence with that event, which I love. The pagan world around us measures time by that event. It's 2023. 2023 since what? Since Jesus? The Word really did become flesh. He became a human being. But the fact remains that the hypostatic union, the union of the divine nature and the human nature of God into one person, Jesus Christ, is a mystery. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In His humanity, God revealed Himself to man. He's accessible to mankind. He spoke our language. He lived our life. In His deity, the Word of God is presented to humankind, to mankind. This Jesus, He really was God. When Jesus walked on the earth, He really was God. When He was nursing at His mother's breast, He was holding the universe together by the word of His power. Calvin writes, although the boundless essence of the word, Jesus, was united with human nature in one person, nevertheless, we do not imagine there to be any enclosing of the word in it. The Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven. Was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth, to hang on the cross in such a way that He always filled the world as from the beginning. Amazing mystery. He came all the way down to us. He came down not as a rich king, not as a powerful, mighty man, but as a servant. Often, most often, veiling His heavenly glory. This infinite and eternal and unchangeable God came to us as a real historical person. The Word became flesh. And this is a great comfort for us in every way. He lived a life. He experienced pain and suffering and rejection, injustice and loss. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And he didn't feel the temptation less because of his lack of original sin. He felt it more keenly than ever. Infinitely more keenly, and yet without sin. He was like us, and this comforts our souls. If you're facing something difficult today, if you're facing something overwhelming today, if you're facing something that has just got you rattled, you can trust that Jesus not only understands because of His divine nature and knowing everything, He's experienced the things that you are experiencing in some form or fashion. He knows your frame. He remembers that you are dust. So the Word became flesh, and praise God. But we also see that, secondly, He dwelt among us. He didn't become a man and stay in heaven. He didn't become a man and just, and just isolate himself somewhere. He dwelt among us. And this word dwelt is literally in the Greek, tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. And this combined with the, the next phrase that we were, we were seeing in Christ, seeing His glory, this would immediately bring to mind the tabernacle in the wilderness. The, the text that we read in Exodus 40 which every Israelite knew and cherished. That He tabernacled among us and we all saw His glory. They would imagine the tabernacle in the wilderness and the glory descending down upon it. The tabernacle was where the glory cloud of God descended. God was seen to have literally dwelled in the midst of the camp of Israel. As they were 40 years in the wilderness journey, they followed the presence of God. 
as did the tabernacle. So the Word is said to have dwelt among us or pitched His tent in our midst or tabernacled among us. And the point is simply that the tabernacle points to Jesus. It points to Christ. Everything in Exodus that we read points to Christ. All of the Old Testament law, all of the sacrifices, the holidays, the celebrations, in some way point to Christ. A.W. Pink has noted a number of connections between the actual tabernacle in the wilderness and Jesus who tabernacled among us. And I thought I would share some of these with you because I find them to be amazing comforts. The unity of God's Word is, is seen in all places, but especially when you see a type of Christ like the tabernacle. First, the tabernacle was the temporary and always moving residence of God. Jesus was on the earth temporarily, 34 years, counting the time in the womb. He was always moving. He had no place to lay His head. He was in Bethlehem and Samaria and Galilee and Egypt and back and forth preaching. Secondly, the tabernacle was specifically for the wilderness journey. When they came into the promised land, there was a temple that was made. But the wilderness journey, we had the tabernacle. It was made for the wilderness. It was hard and rough to travel there. Of course, we know Jesus' life was rough and hard. Born in a stable, in a cattle trough. He lived a poor life. He was despised and rejected by men. His whole life. The perfect, holy God. Striving always to do the right thing, to pursue everyone in love and despised and rejected by the ones He pursued. He left His home in heaven to travail with us in this wilderness journey. And more generally, of course, we know that our lives on this earth are like our wilderness journey. Learn yearning for the promised land, wandering, but following the presence of God, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Thirdly, unlike the temple of Solomon, the tabernacle was not attractive. It was a tent. Christ, of course, had no form or appearance that we would be attracted to Him. As we said already, you could walk right past Him and maybe not even notice Him. So unspectacular was His appearance. Fourthly, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. The visible glory of God dwelt in the tabernacle. The cloud by day and the fire by night. In the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat of the ark, of course, was seen as God's footstool of His throne. And so in Jesus' body was seen the glory of God. We see the glory of God. This is John's point. We'll talk about that in a moment. When He tabernacled among us, we saw His glory. Fifthly, the tabernacle was the place where God met with men. In Exodus 25, verse 21, God says, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat. God met with man there in the Holy of Holies. So Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus is Jacob's ladder connecting heaven and earth. 
There is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The man Jesus Christ. Sixthly, we see that the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp. Always the presence of God was in the midst of the camp. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And besides that, Jesus is the center of the church. The universal church and every church that exists. As Christians, we can disagree on, on many things, but the person and the word of Jesus Christ must be the very center of every true church. He unites every church around himself. Indeed, every Christian has Jesus at the center of their lives. Every true Christian doesn't have Jesus on the periphery, but has Jesus in the very center of everything they do. Seventh, the tabernacle was where the law was kept. The law was kept there. The two tablets of stone were in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, with the mercy seat on top of it, where the, the priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people because they had broken the law that was contained in it. And Christ also kept the law. He wrote it. He kept it perfectly. He explained it. He taught it. He showed it. And by His blood, He sanctifies us when we broke it. Finally and eighthly, the tabernacle was where the sacrifices were made. And Christ, of course, is the perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice. And he goes on to mention a number of contrasts. I'm not going to touch on all of them, but the contrast between the tabernacle, which was temporary, and the temple, which was permanent and glorious. The tabernacle was humble and functional in purpose. The temple of Solomon was grand and glorious in power. Jesus came the first time in humility as a slave, and He's coming the next time in glory and power and majesty and praise God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And thirdly, we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. That's from the Shorter Catechism, number 6. One God, equal in the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Again, we're to think of the glory cloud when John says that we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. The Jews would think of the glory cloud coming down upon this, this tabernacle. The word tabernacling among us. The glories of the infinite God seen in Jesus Christ. If we could, if God expanded our minds to, to see and embrace and, and discuss all of the ways that Jesus displays the glories of God, we would never, ever finish discussing it. And the word glory in the Greek is translating the Hebrew kavod, which, which means originally at its root a heaviness, a weight, a weightiness. This is a glory, a holiness that is set apart from anything that humans can bear. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. In Isaiah 6, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And Isaiah fell down on his face. On the earth, Christ Jesus, he veiled his glory for, for most of his time. The two times that come to mind when he showed his glory, his visible glory, the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, when Peter and James and John all fell on their faces, horrified, terrified to see Jesus in his glory. But one you may have also forgotten also comes to mind. And it comes later, I, th I believe, in the Gospel of John when the, the men who came to arrest Jesus came to the garden. and Jesus said, who is it you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And He said, I am. And they all fell down. Maybe they didn't see it, but they felt His glory for that moment. But usually His visible glory was veiled he would even perform miracles and it says that the apostles had no idea what was happening. They didn't understand what was going on. But what John is talking about here is that glory which is His as a divine being, as Almighty God. The glory that is part of His divinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The perfections of all of His holy attributes. The Father was displayed to us in the Son. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. This Greek phrase, as of the only Son from the Father, is the same as in John 3.16. You all know that. That verse. He gave His only begotten Son. In other words, He's the only one like Him. He's the only Son of the Father. No one else is like Him. The only begotten Son of the Father. There's nobody else fully God and fully man like Jesus. He's God. And His glory has no comparison. We see in every miracle and teaching and kindness or rebuke, in the manner of His birth and His death and His resurrection, the way He lived, all divine perfections. When you see the Son, you see the Father. What a privilege we have to say. To have the Word of God and to see the glory of God in what's written about Christ. But we also believe it by faith. It has to be by faith. When, when He walked on the earth, there was no halo over His head. It's like the medieval paintings when they were painting Jesus, which we should not do. But they would always paint like a little a glow over Him. That didn't exist. There was nothing about him that would say, I am God. He veiled his glory on the earth. He came as a man like us, poor and accessible to all. Men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, healthy and sick, godly and demonic. All are seen in the Gospels coming to this man being healed and instructed and loved and pursued and chastened. And He was showing us the glory of the Father. And someday He's coming back in all fullness of glory. And that's the day when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But even today, for you as a Christian, this is a point of application, it's important for you as a Christian to behold the glory of God. You say, I don't know how to do that. 
Well, John Owen wrote a whole book about it. And what he says is that every Christian, as much as possible in your life, must learn and meditate on God's Word where it describes the glory of Jesus Christ. If you remember in 2 Corinthians, the book we previously finished, 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is where John Owen really draws the truth of this for the writing of the book. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, this is Paul speaking, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We all want the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's how Owen, just a few brief um, statements from John Owen. The Scripture shows us two ways by which we may behold the glory of Christ. We may behold it by faith in this world, faith being the evidence of things not seen, and we may behold it by sight in the next. So it is only as we behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world that our hearts will be drawn more and more to Christ to the full enjoyment of the sight of His glory hereafter. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire a strong faith and a powerful love, which will give us rest and peace and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory I would fix all my thoughts and desires. I shall ask then in this book how we behold the glory of Christ by faith and then lead believers into more holy meditation. And then he just goes through. We see the glory of God in the Word, the glory of Christ in His person, in His humbling Himself, this is the table of contents, in His love as our mediator, in Christ's work as our mediator, the glory of Christ's exaltation, the glory of Christ in the Old Testament, the glory of Christ's union with the church, giving Himself to believers, restoring all things. This should be all of our duties when we read the Scriptures every day, is to see Christ in His glories, to meditate on these truths, to seek to know Him. That's how we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's not, it's not just, it's definitely not imagining what Jesus looks like or something like that. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, it's remembering what God's Word says about the Almighty God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses those truths so that you might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in ever-increasing glory from one degree of glory to another, as Paul said. So we, like the, old, or like the, uh, the Gospel writer, like John, we also behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Well, the, the sentence ends that Jesus came to us, He was made flesh, but also that He's full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the concluding part of this verse and of the sermon. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. The Gospel is about grace, but the Gospel is about truth. In the Gospel, we see love and we see justice. There is no grace without truth and there is no truth without grace. So Jesus came uniting the truth of God's law with the grace of God's promise. What is the truth? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. This is what I told you children. We've all broken God's law. All of us have done that. We've rejected the truth. We're spiritually dead. There's no hope for any of us apart from Jesus. That's the truth. But the grace is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. He came down to save sinners like us. And all of us who would believe in Him, He gives the right to become children of God. Let this Gospel comfort your, your soul today. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to You as a people who are overwhelmed by Your glory, by Your sacrifice, that You would leave heaven and come to earth in the form of a man. Not only that, that You would suffer and die. You would suffer and die for those whom You came to save who deserve none of Your goodness, who deserve none of Your grace, who deserve nothing but hell and eternal punishment. Your people rejected You. The whole world rejected You. And yet You chose to save Your people. We thank You that You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. May the Gospel of Jesus Christ